you were living in the first century Roman world, being identified as a Christian in that world was something that carried with it a tremendous amount of risk. For a Christian to go around and profess their allegiance to a king other than the Caesar, well, that could earn you a beating, a stoning, an overnight stay in prison, or maybe even worse. Christians in first century times were often treated like common criminals. They were subject, by the time the second century was starting to roll around, they were becoming more and more subject to beheadings, to crucifixions, whenever they would refuse to renounce their faith in Jesus Christ and bow to the various gods and idols of that time. In fact, some of the emperors, like Nero in particular, seemed to almost delight in finding new and novel ways in which they could execute these Christ followers. For example, Nero introduced the idea of twilight executions. And what that consisted of was Christians being impaled with a stake and then being burned as human torches to light up the streets of Rome and the other cities of that time. By the time the second century did fully roll around though, the idea of being thrown to the lions and being thrown to the tigers and to other ravenous types of beasts, that really became the preferred norm of death for Christians and it almost actually became kind of a form of entertainment as it was reserved only for the worst of criminals, it was reserved for runaway slaves, Yes, it was reserved for Christians. Centuries later, a tour guide was actually giving some travelers a tour of the Roman Colosseum. And he explained to the tourists how there were many Christians who had died there in that place in order to entertain the bloodthirsty and the ravenous mobs and the crowds. In the midst of that kind of explanation, one of the tourists raised his hand and he asked, he asked, are there any relics left? of those Christian martyrs who died here? You know, maybe some fragments of of, of clothing, maybe some personal possession, maybe even bone or something along those lines. Is there anything left of those martyrs? The tour guide simply knelt down and he scooped up a handful of dirt in his hand and he said, my friend, you're standing on them. You know, we think about that and it's really hard for us to imagine and even fathom a society where Christians are being killed simply for being Christians, just for being what you and I are trying to be. But that was indeed the reality of our brothers and our sisters who made a stand for truth, who made a stand for righteousness, who made a stand for Christ in those early centuries of Christianity. I often stop and think about what kind of courage, what kind of temerity, what kind of conviction and boldness does it take to remain faithful to Christ whenever your house is being burnt to the ground. Or whenever your parents are being dragged off and thrown into jail. Or maybe when your spouse is being fed to the lions. It is of interest to me that when, at least as best we can tell, the very first Christian martyr was being stoned to death, that was Stephen in Acts chapter 7, it is of interest to me that one of the men who was actually complicit in his execution would go on to write the majority of the New Testament. And that man in his letters would repeatedly admonish brothers and sisters in Christ that despite all of the persecution and all of the torture and all of the trials of their life, he urged them to stand firm no matter the cost. 
And so, for example, to the Christians at Rome, Paul wrote to them in Romans 11 verse 20, Stand fast through faith. To the Christians at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 13, Paul said to them, Stand firm in the faith. To the brothers and sisters that were scattered throughout Galatia, he told them, Keep standing firm in this liberty that you have in Christ Jesus. To the church at Ephesus, he said to them, stand firm against the schemes, the wiles of the devil, Ephesians 6 verse 11. To the Philippians, he told them to have unity amongst one another and to stand fast in one spirit, Philippians 1 27. And to the Thessalonians, he told those brethren, stand firm in the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 8. Over and over and over again to nearly everyone that he wrote to, This former persecutor of the church told his brothers and his sisters in Christ to stand. Stand for, stand for something. Stand for something that is worth standing for. Stand up and be counted for. Make a declaration publicly that you are supporting and standing for what is right, for what is good, and do not ever shirk back from it. And that spirit of courage, that call to courage, That call to have some conviction and some confidence, that is echoed not just throughout the Bible, but that is echoed throughout many of the hymns that we sing. This morning we sang the song, Standing on the Promises of God. We sing that song, The Solid Rock, On Christ the Solid Rock, I Stand. We sing that song, Dare to Stand Like Joshua. Have some convictions and stand up, even in the face of, even in the face of rejection. Stand then in His great might when we sing Soldiers of Christ Arise. That is a wonderful theme. And I wonder if maybe there were some hymns in first century times that those brethren sang to admonish and encourage each other that echoed that very same idea that we've got to stand for what we know is right. And just as much as those first century Christians needed to be reminded of that, we too today, in the 21st century, we need to be reminded of that call to stand. And maybe the song that we sing that maybe best encapsulates that idea is song number 397, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. This song was written back in the mid-1800s right around the time of the Restoration Movement. And it became a very popular hymn in the various tent meetings and the revival meetings that were going on at that time and were very common across the landscape of America. The original version of this song contained six stanzas as opposed to the four stanzas that we have here in our hymn book tonight. And this song is very unique in that it relies on a particular form of imagery throughout it, and that is it relies on the idea and the imagery of battle, of warfare. And you think about that, that's a very appropriate kind of setting to think about this call to stand. Because when you're in a wartime situation, you're in an environment where courage, and where bravery to stand for your particular cause, for the side that you are standing on, well, that would be of utmost importance. If you're a coward, if you're apprehensive in any way, then you're not going to be of much use to the general, to the king, or to the rest of the king's army. And so this song, in many ways, it is a call to arms. And we as Christians, we are called. Look at all the passages where Paul cites this. We are called to stand. We're called to stand up. We're called to stand up and actually to engage the battle, to fight the good fight of faith. We're not called to cower. We're not called to cave in. We're called to stand up for the Lord. Now, I don't want to try and dissect every single word of this song this evening, 
But I do want to call your attention as we read these four stanzas, I do want to call your attention to what I think are some very interesting scriptural references that the hymn writer has included and incorporated into the ideas of this song. The hymn writer, a guy by the name of George Duffield, this guy clearly knew his Bible because he draws upon several different warfare battle images that are found throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, some of which are kind of obscure to build the various content for this song. And so, for example, look at the first verse. Stand up. Stand up for Jesus, you soldiers of the cross. Lift high His royal banner. It must not suffer loss. From victory unto victory His army shall He lead till every foe is vanquished and Christ is Lord indeed. That expression that's used there at the end of verse 1, till every foe is vanquished, and Christ is Lord indeed. I think he probably drew that out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where it's describing there the Lord in His return, in that great and final battle, if you will, that final spiritual battle, the battle where He will put to death firmly and finally death and all of those who are the enemies of the cross. They're going to be stamped out. 1 Corinthians 15, 25, For He must reign until He has put all enemies under His feet. That speaks of our King. And that speaks as well about our need to be standing with our King. Or how about the second stanza? Stand up. Stand up for Jesus. The trumpet call obey. When you hear the trumpet, it's time to stand up. It's time to form a line. Forth to the mighty conflict in this His glorious day. You that are men now serve Him against unnumbered foes. Your courage rises with danger and strength to strength oppose. That expression that's used in verse 2 there about ye that are men, now serve Him, that's a really obscure reference. That's taken out of the book of Exodus in Exodus chapter 10 and in verse 11 where the quotation there is, Go now, you who are men, and serve the Lord. What's interesting, if you actually pull your Bible out and you read that passage, that's not Moses calling the children of Israel to arms. That's actually Pharaoh. And it's actually Pharaoh, a heathen king, telling Moses and Aaron, you take your Israelite men and I'll let you go out into the wilderness and you can worship and you can serve your Lord there for a little while and then I expect you to come back. Well, George Duffield decided to take the words of that particular quotation, kind of put a little bit of a spin on them for us to think about the call that has been given to us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 that we are to act like men. In the sense that we are to have some courage and some boldness. We're to be mature. And the Lord wants those who are mature at the front lines of this battle. Stand up, He says. The third stanza. Stand up. Stand up for Jesus. Stand in His strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. Put on the gospel armor. Each piece put on with prayer. Where duty calls or danger be never wanting or lacking there. That expression that's used there in the third verse, that the arm of flesh will fail you, that's a powerful statement. That comes from 2 Chronicles chapter 32 and in verse 8. Whenever Sennacherib and the forces of the Assyrian army, they began to encompass and circle around the walls of Jerusalem. And the people inside, they're fearful. They just don't know how they're going to be able to, to conquer the mighty Assyrians. But King Hezekiah, he speaks to his people and he says, don't you be afraid of them. All they have are human arms, the arms of flesh. What we have on our side is the mighty arm of God. God is with us. And as a result, we are going to win this battle. 
That's a powerful idea. That verse, that particular stanza starts with, you stand in God's strength alone. Don't try to stand on your strength. Preach about that a little bit this morning. We need to understand total dependence upon the Lord. If we're ever going to be able to stand against the devil, we're going to have to learn to lean upon the Lord fully. Stand up. Stand up for Jesus. The fourth stanza. Stand up. Stand up for Jesus. The strife will not be long. This day, the noise of battle, and the next... The victor's song. To him that overcometh a crown of life shall be, he with the king of glory shall live eternally. That expression, that uh, title that is given there to the Lord at the end of verse 4, he with the king of glory, that's found only in one place in Scripture. It's found in the 24th Psalm. It's credited as a Psalm of David. And he uses that expression two or three times in that psalm alone. And in verse 8 specifically, he says, Who is this King of glory? And then he answers his own question. He's the Lord. The strong and mighty, the Lord who is mighty in battle. That's our Lord. That's whose side we're standing on. I don't know who everybody else, what side they're taking, but we're taking His side. Because He is the one who's going to be the victor and we want to be with the victor. Stand up. Stand up for Jesus. Our king goes before us. That's what good leaders do. The question is, are we going to be standing with him as he leads us into that battle? You stop and think about all the different ways in which we are called to stand. We may not face the kind of persecution that our brothers and sisters did in first century times, second century times, third century times, in those early centuries. But we are called to stand in the midst of a hostile world. We're called to stand in the midst of a world that increasingly just doesn't seem to care about the Lord, doesn't seem to care about His ways, doesn't seem to care about His book. The question is, when sin is flaunted in front of us, will we have the courage to stand up for Jesus? To call that out? To call it for what it is? Whenever error is being taught and being promoted in the religious world, will we stand up for Jesus? That's His Word. Who's going around messing with Jesus' word? Are we going to have the courage to stand up and say, no, that's not what Jesus said? Or what about whenever the Bible is being slandered? So many terrible and awful things are said about the word of God. Are we going to be quick to jump in there and say, no, that's just not right? You shouldn't say that about the Bible. I believe the Bible is God's word. Will we have that kind of courage? Whenever the name of Jesus or the name of God, when it's being blasphemed, when it's being cursed, when it's being used as an exclamation point, are we going to jump in there and say, hey, you shouldn't talk about the Lord that way. You shouldn't use His name in a flippant manner like that. Will we stand up for Him? When the cause of Satan is being advanced, because that's where the battle's going on, we're on the side of the Lord, and everybody else is on the side of the devil, when Satan's cause is being advanced, will we have the courage to stand up and to fight? Two questions, and then we'll sing the invitation song. First of all, if you're a Christian, are you currently taking a stand for Jesus? When those kinds of scenarios that I just listed off, when those things happen, and they do happen in our lives as we interact with other people and we interact with our world, are we ready to jump in there and to stand up for the Lord? Or do we go put our head in the sand, cower and hide? God is calling you to something better, brother or sister. Stand up. Stand up for Jesus. It's also worth asking that if you're not a Christian, do you need to begin taking your stand for Jesus? Because the way that that all starts, the way that that all begins, 
is by becoming a Christian, by enlisting in His army, by putting your faith and trust in Him as Lord, by confessing that He is God's Son, by repenting, turning from sin and turning to Him, and then by being baptized in water for the remission of your sins. If you're of an age of accountability, you understand what you need to do, you're ready to act upon that, and you're ready to be enlisted in this army, then all things are ready for you this evening to become a child of God. We'd love just very much to help you and assist you in becoming a Christian this evening. If you're not a Christian, or if you are a Christian, think very seriously about the words of this song. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Think about whether or not you're doing that. If you're subject to the invitation in any way, would you come forward right now while we stand and while we sing?